This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Lessons from the world's top professors, anytime, anyplace. World history examined and science explained. This is One Day University. Welcome. This is Half Hour History, Secrets of the Medieval World. I'm your host, Mike Coscarelli. This week, we continue with the early medieval period. Before there were knights in shining armor at Arthur's Round Table or towering cathedrals, there was Rome. And Rome was the center of everything. Until it wasn't. So what happened? We'll let Chris take it from here. Well... Right away, we have to ask ourselves, did Rome fall? And I have to tell you that I'm one of those historians who doesn't believe that Rome fell because it makes it sound like there was a light switch, right? So Rome is going along, everything is fine, and then along comes the year 476, a light switch goes off, and then we're in the Dark Ages for a thousand years. Doesn't work for me. So I am more uh, apt to say to my students and to you that Rome had a certain demise and that Rome transformed from one form into another form. After all, why does the Roman Catholic Church speak Latin officially? Why is the city of Rome so important to Catholicism and to Christianity? There are historical reasons for that, and they're all tied up with the Roman Empire. It's simply impossible to talk about the Roman Empire without talking about Christianity. So let's take that date of 476 and move back um, a couple of centuries. And what we begin to hear, what we begin to talk about is not a story of Rome where everything was fine and then it begins to crumble and then it crashes and then something else happens. That 
discontinuity between one period and another period is really part of an older school of what we call historiography. Historiography is the history of history. It's the history of schools of thought. And the school of thought that I subscribe to is more something called the late antique school. Now, it's a rather unfortunate title because as soon as you say late antique, you think of the antique roadshow, and we don't mean that, furniture. We mean the ancient world, antique being another word for the ancient world. And if any of you are really interested in Peter Brown's biography of Augustine of Hippo, Peter Brown is an historian of this period, and he tries to look at Augustine of Hippo, who dies around 420 or 430, as one of these people who is a late antique character. He's Christian, he's also Roman, and he's in this transitional period. And in fact, he writes his great work, City of God, because the city of Rome had been uh, sacked. And so he wants to talk about, well, what's next? What's going on in this transformation of time? So once we begin to look at this period as a longer period, the, the year that kind of becomes very important is the year 293, when a particular Roman emperor by the name of Diocletian decides that running an empire the size of, if you recall, the continental United States, it's just too big. And so what he does is he draws kind of a line in the sand and he breaks the empire up. It's not quite a 50-50 split. It's more kind of like a two-thirds, one-third split. And he says, we're going to have two sections. We're going to have a Western empire and an Eastern empire. And the Western empire is going to stay centered in Rome. And we're kind of looking for a place to um, use as a capital for the Eastern Empire, and that's going to become Constantinople, a new city, um, in, uh, in a few decades. And so East and West. And then um, around 312, there's a new emperor by the name of Constantine the Great. Some people say Constantine. It doesn't matter. And Constantine was kind of really fascinated with the Greek East more than the Latin West. He thought, that's where the energy is, and, and I want to build that other capital. So he takes basically a village called Byzantium, and he builds it up into this huge city that he calls Constantinople. And this is very, very um, kind of arrogance, because Constantinople is his name, Constantine, and the word polis, which means city-state in Greek, and that's how you get Constantinople. And he calls it a Nova Roma, a new Rome. And he moves there. Now, there's an emperor in the West, uh, but he goes to the East. And because he's really the really powerful guy, the energy of the empire, the resources of the empire begin to shift over from West to East. And that leaves the city of Rome kind of vulnerable. And what happens is that the edges or the frontiers of the Latin West begin to move backwards. Rome doesn't explode. Rome implodes. Rome suffers from something called hypothermia. Right? God forbid this should happen to us. But if you suffer from hypothermia, what happens is that your body says, whoop, I can't live without my brain, without my lungs, without my heart and my major organs. So I'm going to draw blood away from my extremities. I don't want to live without my fingers and toes, but I can actually survive without that. So the blood comes in to save the heart, and the heart, of course, is the city of Rome. So Rome begins to kind of creep inwards, 
and the city of Rome becomes vulnerable because these other tribes from outside of Rome can get closer and closer, and the city of Rome is full of money, and so the city of Rome itself is sacked three times in a 50-year period, in 410, and 445, and in 476, and there's the date, and let's finally talk about 476, okay? So there's an emperor on the throne in Rome, and his given name is Romulus, and his title is Augustus, emperor. And if you look back in Roman history, Rome had been founded by twins called Romulus and Remus. So historians in the 17 and 1800s see a Romulus at the very beginning, say about 1000 BC or BCE, and they see a Romulus in 476, and they think, this is great. This is bookends. Boom, 476 is the fall of Rome. And that begins this kind of, uh, you know, the thesis of a line in the sand. So what's happening is that as the Roman Empire transforms in the West and the energy moves to the East, power begins to shift from the Western capital of the city of Rome up North. And Clovis, rather unusual name, isn't it? Clovis converts in the year 503. And Clovis is pretty much a tribal chieftain in the area of France and Germany, modern France and Germany, Germania and Gaul in, in Latin um, ideas. And that's going to be an important moment for the power shift of Christianity later on. And so there's really no Western emperor. So who's left in the city of Rome but this guy called the Bishop of Rome who over time becomes so powerful in a civil and a religious way that we call him the Pope with all of what that means. And then we have this notion of the barbarian invasions coming in, right? Now, a barbarian is a relative term. Barbarian is, is one, of the, one of those distinctions between us versus them. And to put it in kind of trite terms, but maybe terms that can help us, if you live in Chicago, Cubs fans call White Sox fans barbarians, and White Sox fans call Cubs fans barbarians. They just, you know, it's not us, so it's them. And every culture, dating back to the ancient Greeks, says anybody who doesn't know our language speaks like blah, 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 blah. And that's where barbarians, as a word, comes from. And these barbarians, this, again, this notion that the barbarians invade Rome because Rome is collapsing. Well, how many of you would run into a burning building? I wouldn't. So obviously these tribes are coming into Roman territories because Roman territories have things that they want, like aqueducts, like clean running water, like the equivalent of flush toilets, not quite, um, like better nutrition, like better organization, um, safer streets. And so these people begin to move in and they take their own native uh, Germanic culture and they marry it with Roman imperial systems and we begin to get the early Middle Ages. And these people were probably pushed... Also, they were going towards something that they wanted, but they were pushed from behind by Attila the Hun, who dies in 453, and the other Huns, and they may have been pushed by other marauding tribes in China or Russia, probably because of um, bad harvests, and so these people needed to move forward to find food. That's after Rome in the West. What's going on in the East? Well, that little village of Byzantium has now been transformed into the city of Constantinople. And there's an emperor in Constantinople, the heir of Constantine, until the year 1453. I didn't make a mistake there. That's 1453. The emperor in Constantinople is going to claim to be the heir of Julius Caesar, who is killed in 44 BC, of Augustus, of Constantine, until 1453. And the big one, early one in our period, is Justinian. Justinian has a very long reign from 527 to 565, 
um, has this reign where he is recreating Western learning in a Greek key or a Greek riff, if you will, and this very close marriage of church and state. Now, the context here is that uh, Justinian dies right before that Muslim push that we were talking about. And again, the Muslims kind of bounce off of Constantinople after 632, and they go across North Africa and over to the West because they can't take over Constantinople until 1453, when Constantinople finally falls. And there's a golden age of Byzantine history from about 850 to about 1215, and it's when things get a little tight there that the Eastern Emperor writes a letter to the Western Pope and says, hey, I need some help here. The Muslims are at my gates. And that's one of the, um, one of the impetus for, uh, for the Crusades, as we're going to see. Let's go back to Justinian for a second. I had a fascinating wife by the name of Theodora, and Justinian and Theodora really reigned almost as partners. And Justinian inherited from Constantine this notion of sacred kingship. Constantine saw himself, he called himself a 13th apostle, a priest and king. And of course, that's a Christian version of the idea that the Roman emperor was divine. And it goes back into history with this very close relationship between, say, Pharaoh, who is divine, the son of Ra. And so, as we're going to see further down the line, this very uneasy relationship of what kind of we call a theocracy where the church and the state are the same thing, they would have never separated those words, pits an Eastern emperor versus a Western pope. And Justinian um, is so fascinated by Rome that he redoes the law code for his part of the empire. It's called the Codex Justinianus. Again, he rather... um, not humbly, names it after himself. And it's a revision of the Roman law code. And then once he's got that, he starts traveling west. He takes over southern Italy, he takes over Sicily, and he's trying to now push the energy not from west to east, as Constantine had done, but from east to west. And Constantinople is going to remain this eastern jewel for years, where royal um, authority was given as patronage to thinkers and artists and an example of that, the most beautiful physical example of that is the Church of Hagia Sophia, which has been a church and then a mosque and back and forth um, several times. That's what's going on in the East. Well, right now we're heading into a short break, but when we return, Vikings. Plus, what it was like to live under Islamic rule. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules... And yet, 
Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star starting May 15th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's going on way in the north? In fact, even those areas in Scandinavia where Rome never showed up. And that brings us to the Vikings. A lot of people don't know where to put the Vikings. You, know, you think of the Vikings and you think of cartoons and you think of Thor and you say to yourself, well, where does that go in my chronology, in my geography? And the answer is it goes in the early medieval period. Some of you may have read these um, Vinland sagas. So the Vikings are called the Norse men because they come from the north. And so the North men are the Norse men. And that's really how they show up in the ancient sources. They don't show up as the Vikings. And they start moving around, around 800 or around 850. And they start um, moving around in the summer, right? Because you can't sail in the winter. So they move around in the summer. And they're raiding parties. The Vikings are hit-and-run operations. They plunder. They strike and they plunder and they leave rather than settle. When they do settle, they settle as staging posts for further raids as opposed to something that's more permanent. Now, some of those staging posts naturally grew, but they were never intended to be permanent. And so one example way up in Northeast Europe would be um, on the eastern portion of England in the city of York. York is actually a Viking or Norse word for Jorvik, J-O-R-V-I-K. And the city of York to this day takes its Viking heritage very, very seriously. And there's a Jorvik center there now where there's been an archaeological dig and a recreation of what the city uh, or the village of Jorvik looked like um, in that period. But when we think of the Vikings, we think of cold weather. Okay, but they actually also did these strike and plunder raids in the Iberian Peninsula. They didn't quite get into the Mediterranean too far because of the way their ships were, were built. And bit by bit, they moved from England to Iceland to Greenland and all the way across North America into what is Canada's Newfoundland around the year 1000. And again, that was a smaller community. Although what people say is the Viking well or the Viking tower in Newport, Rhode Island, certainly is not, but it still draws tourists there. Now, one other player. So we've had after Rome, we've had Byzantium, we've had the Vikings, and now Islam. So to repeat, Muhammad's birth is about the year 570 AD or CE. Even Muslim sources aren't sure about that. Everybody agrees he dies in 632. About 610, when he's about 40 years old, he receives the first revelation. The angel Gabriel comes to him and says, recite, there is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet, which is the first revelation, but it actually doesn't occur in the first 
uh, surah or chapter um, of the Quran because the Quran um, doesn't go chronologically, and so it's about two-thirds of the way um, through. And what Muhammad does is he attacks local idol worship in Mecca, the area in modern-day Saudi Arabia. And Muhammad is very much like Abraham was in the ancient biblical times because he is a monotheist surrounded by polytheists. And so he's thrown out um, of Mecca in the year 622 in something that shows up in the sources as the Hajira. And he's thrown out of um, Mecca and he goes to Medina. This happens to be year one of the Muslim calendar, right? So we've had a change in the Christian calendar, year one of the Muslim calendar. We have an ancient Jewish calendar as well. He dies in 632, and in a 100-year period that historians couldn't make up if they tried, from 632 to 732, Islam begins its advance. Now, there is a lot of controversy about Islam's advance. A lot of people say Islam advanced its, its faith at the point of a sword. Well, Islam was spreading, and excuse me, but Christianity had spread that way as well. And so this notion that Christianity spreads peacefully is not true um, in all cases, in all places, at all times. And the same is true of Islam. Yes, there were bloody encounters, but there were also encounters where communities welcomed Islam. It was the dominating force. Why are you going to fight against that tide? And they cut deals with Islam in much the same way that people cut deals with the Roman Empire. Come to town, we will be loyal, but leave us alone to worship as we wish. And so in 632 to 732, Islam takes over the modern-day Holy Land, gets as far as Constantinople, but can't take over Constantinople for another 700 years. Saudi Arabia and all of those areas today, like uh, uh, Kuwait and all of North Africa, jumps the Iberian Peninsula, Spain, and establishes a capital in Cordoba. And so uh, there are a lot of places in the United States and, in fact, around the world where Jewish, Muslim, and Christian dialogue takes place. And a lot of these programs are called Cordoba House or the Cordoba Program because Cordoba becomes kind of um, an example of how the three faiths could have coexisted. So it's, they're stopped in the east in the year 718 by a Byzantine emperor by the name of Leo III fighting against a very, very interesting Islamic uh, general called uh, Suleiman comes up in the sources as Suleiman the Magnificent, and they're stopped in the West in 732 by Charlemagne's grandfather, who was named Charles Martel. Now you can't open up a phone book from that period of time, if one did exist, and find Martel, comma Charles, because Martel is a Frankish word for the hammer. It kind of sounds like a mafia boss. Charles the Hammer, and he's called the Hammer because he was such a forceful fighter that running into him was like running into a brick wall. Remember Stonewall Jackson from the American South? And so everybody has to come together under Charles's um, command to do what nobody had been able to do for a hundred years, which is stop the Muslims. And in fact, he does that. Um, at a battle on a field between the two cities of Poitiers and Tours. It actually was closer to Poitiers, but both of those two um, cities claim to this day to have been the spot where Charles Martel stopped the Muslim advance because of tourism dollars. And Charles Martel has had a new life um, in the last 10 or 15 years 
because of the very politicized notion that some have that Islam is trying to capture or take over Western civilization. So people who are looking for some political uh, uh, character to say, oh, we need to be like, they pick Charles Martel, um, an obvious example of politicizing history. And so the Muslims fall back from um, that area in Gaul. They go back over the Pyrenees, and then the story of 732 to 1492 from the Christian perspective is called the Reconquista or the Reconquest, where Christianity is pushing down, 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 down the um, Muslims, and the big moment uh, is Toledo's fall in 1085, and we'll see later that it's the fall of Toledo in 1085 in the West that makes the Pope say, well, if we beat the Muslims there, maybe we can beat them in the Holy Land, and the crusading movement begins 11 years later in 1096. I want to spend a moment talking about dynasties. Now, again, you may think that this goes against my notion that I don't want to talk about um, names, dates, and places, but I do want to talk about uh, these dynasties because the dynasties um, from this period remain important dynasties throughout history because they are centered in cities that are still very important um, in history. And so the first dynasty, after Muhammad dies, Muhammad doesn't have a son. He doesn't have a natural heir, so it's his son-in-law that takes over. And very quickly, Islam splits into Sunni and Shia, and there's also a Sufi mystic movement that crosses over um, the two of them, in much the same way that Christianity splits into East and West early on as well. And so you have, it takes a little while for dynasties to set themselves up, and these are rival dynasties. And the first major dynasty is the Umayyad dynasty, which is based in Damascus. Damascus remains the capital of modern-day Syria. And that's for about 100 years after Muhammad till about 750. And then the Abbasids, who are based in Baghdad. Yes, that's Baghdad in modern-day Iraq which actually is not far from ancient Babylon, and they basically control um, Islam, especially in what we call the modern Middle East, from about 750 to 1258. And then power shifts to Egypt in the capital of Cairo under the Fatimids um, for a period of time within there. And then the Mamluks take over from 1250 to about 1530. It's in fact um, the Mamluks who take over Constantinople in 1453, and then the Ottomans. And folks know the Ottomans from courses that you've taken. If you remember famous cartoons of the sick man of Europe, on the eve of World War I, the Ottoman Empire is that very uh, corrupt, decentralized, shaky organization that gets destroyed by the imperial Western powers and gets chopped up officially in the Treaty of Versailles. And in fact, Europe and the modern Middle East are still dealing with some of the fallout from those decisions. How did Muslims live with Christians and Jews? Well, you know, we don't want to, again, use uh, cartoon characters, but it is generally true that in the medieval period, it was better to be a Christian or a Jew living under Islamic rule than a Muslim or a Jew living under Christian rule. Because Muslims didn't have this notion that they needed to evangelize, that they needed to convert everyone underneath them. And so let's use an example from the Roman Empire. The Jews in the Roman Empire were what was, what was called a religio licta, a permitted religion. 
That is, the Jews were left alone. Now remember, the Jews are monotheists in a polytheistic setting in the Roman Empire. And Jews are allowed to practice their faith as long as they pray to their God, Yahweh, for the safety and security of the empire and pay tribute. Nice fancy word for taxes. And so there is a measure of tolerance toward Jews. And this happens a little bit with Christians as well, but Christianity becomes persecuted in the Roman Empire, as uh, do the Jews later on. And so the notion of Islam is that Islam goes into a culture and it assimilates what's there and it enculturates what's there. It doesn't destroy the culture. It encounters the culture and says, what can we marry here? Which is precisely what the Roman Empire had done when spreading north in Europe and precisely what Christianity will do in its best moments, assimilate and enculturate as well. And that's why some people who are used to using the phrase um, Pax Romana, the Roman peace, have looked upon this period as a Pax Islamica. Um, It's a controversial term, not everybody subscribes to it, but by and large, if you paid your taxes and you didn't cause trouble, you were allowed to practice your Christian or Jewish faith. That is not to say that there weren't the equivalent of what we call pogroms against Christians and Jews under Islamic rule, but then again, there were pogroms under Christian rule against Jews and and Muslims as well. So we have to tell the whole story. And so there is no need for an Islamic Renaissance because there's no Islamic Dark Age. Muslims are are having these great advances in medicine and math and exploration and the sciences. The face of the Roman world has significantly changed. Next time on Secrets of the Medieval World, the Renaissance and the Renaissance men behind it, not just Da Vinci. Half Hour History, Secrets of the Medieval World, from One Day University, is a production of iHeart Podcasts and School of Humans. If you're enjoying the show, leave a review in your favorite podcast app and check out the Curiosity Audio Network for podcasts covering history, pop culture, true crime, and more. humans. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene, was good? 
But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.